Acts chapter 25 and verse 1. Acts 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, "'Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense.' But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, "'Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me?' But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the, the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came, to, to, came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but who Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss for how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem to be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to, to, Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to your word now, and we ask that you would open our eyes and show us wonderful things Lord, teach and instruct us, move in our hearts. May we not leave the same as we came today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated.
Thank you for your patience in another full chapter reading. Well, at the end of chapter 24, Paul had been left in prison by Felix. And that was two years. Again, we have these compressed amounts of time that Luke is recording in Acts. Well, Felix was removed from power. We won't go into that whole story, but you can imagine it wasn't a promotion. And Festus comes in, and as soon as he gets there, as soon as he arrives to Caesarea, three days later he goes off to Jerusalem. And as soon as he gets to Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders make, they waste no time. They come to him, and they want Paul brought to them, and Luke reveals their intentions which was the conspiracy that they developed over two years ago. And to me, that's remarkable that after two years, these people still held this grudge against Paul, that they were still willing to commit to kill him by ambush if he came to Jerusalem. Even though they were trying to manipulate the law in their favor, we see God providentially use the law of man to protect Paul. Well, Whether we look at our own time or we look back through history, we know that confidence in the laws of man can be wanting at best. And this is because our laws are not perfect. And even the laws that are good, or even laws that are based on Scripture, that are right, become wanting because they're enforced by sinners. It's because we're all involved that the law becomes a mess. And yet Scripture commands us to submit to the governing authorities. It's very clear, especially in Romans 13, where Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We're supposed to obey the law. Paul goes on, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, that's a little harder to accept maybe than the first part. Maybe it's easier to submit than it is to believe all Leadership that has been instituted is from God? Well, a better explanation of that is that all authority is under God's authority. All authority is under His sovereign rule, and all authority added up, combined together, can't subvert His plan and His will. So how do we then fall asleep in peace at night when we look at our own governing authority that seems more like a circus than objective good rulers over us? Where do we find peace? Well, as we saw last week, it is because of who God is, His character, that we can have peace when we see those in authority act evil. My premise today for us from Acts 25 is that because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God, because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God, we can not only submit to the governing authorities, but we can actually have peace in this life. We can have peace even in the midst of our current situation. And I'm not referring necessarily to any specific situation, but just that all of us know there are plenty of situations to get worked up about. The law of God alone cannot bring this peace because of our sinfulness. And we read that this morning. I love how the Lord superintends. This shows you His authority and His power and His sovereignty. 
this passage, I'm going to read it three times. It was already in my notes, worked into my outline when I got the order of worship from Minda this week, who included it in our reading of the order of worship, Romans 3. So God is good even in that. So we need to hear this this morning because it's obviously very important the way that God worked all this in to our worship together. Romans 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, listen to this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in you and me? Does Paul know who he's talking about here? I mean, you who know your deepest and darkest secrets, the things that no one else knows... Do you believe that the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in you? Well, it can because of what Jesus has done. The law couldn't do that. Jesus did that. You see, when we look at the law, we see condemnation, and rightly so. That's one of the purposes of the law. We see how we cannot meet its righteous requirements. We fail to measure up. Another use of the law is that it protects us, and that's good. The law does protect us. We should obey the law, we should, meaning the law of God. But the problem is none of us live according to it perfectly. None of us measure up. So that is why I'm saying today, the only way we can know peace, the only way we can submit to the governing authority and live in this life is knowing peace with God's law through Jesus who fulfilled that law by condemning sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's what I want us to see today. So there's four examples in this text. We're going to look at them very quickly. We've read through it. One of the things with a narrative is it's, it's, this one is it's very clear what happened, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining it, but just going through and pointing out these four examples of how God worked through the laws of men to protect Paul. We saw Festus come in. He wasted no time. He heads right to Jerusalem three days after his arrival. This would have been strategic and Probably necessary for any new governor of Palestine. Festus in particular needed a primer in who the Jews were. Maybe a little bit of Hebrew pick up along the way to be able to greet people and understand what is going on. So he goes to Jerusalem to connect to the leaders there, which would have been important for carrying out peace and establishing his power, but also to learn himself. And the Jewish leaders we saw wasted no time coming to him Uh, they want Paul's blood still after all this time. And they ask for a favor. They want him to be brought there. They want to kill him. So the first act of Festus that Luke records indicates to us that he has at least a little more wisdom and character than Felix had. Because while they were trying to manipulate the law, Festus says, hey, we're going to do things on my terms here. He's glad to hear the case. I'll I'll hear the charges, you can bring the charges against him, but I'm not summoning Paul up to Jerusalem. We can all go to Caesarea, I'm going there in a few days, you can come with me if you want to bring charges against him there. And I think this is the first example of God working through the governing authority to protect Paul. Because had Festus given in to the request to bring Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem, he would almost certainly have been killed. But instead, Paul remains under protection there. Um, in prison, as it were, from those who planned to kill him. And then in the next verses 6 to 12, so 
Festus comes back to Caesarea. And again, you can't say anything against Festus's work ethic, right? I mean, he's on it. The next day, he's setting up the tribunal. He's not wasting a lot of time, and he's going to hear Paul's charges in verse 6. And the Jewish leaders came as well, and they brought many and serious charges against him, verse 7, which Luke adds they could not prove. And we've seen this in the previous trials, how they could not prove these charges. They had no witnesses. They were trumped up charges. And after the charges were presented, Paul then makes his defense. Luke summarizes it in verse 8 in one sentence. Paul says, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And we know he covers the breadth of those trumped up charges in that defense. We won't unpack that again. And then in, in, in verse 9, Luke acknowledges that Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. We have to remember, Festus is still a politician, right? He's in charge of keeping the peace. And so he asks Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem to face the charges there? He wanted to keep the peace. He wanted to do a favor. He not only wanted to keep the peace, but he also probably wanted to get rid of the case. He didn't ask for this case. He inherited this case, and the case was already old. And he probably saw pretty quickly that if these guys were willing to hold on a grudge for two years and want to kill this guy, that there's more to this than I even care to uncover. So you want to go to Jerusalem and let them handle it? I mean, that's basically what he's saying here. And Paul responds again, I'm innocent. I'm not trying to escape justice. But no one, Paul goes back to the law. No one has the power, including you, Festus, to turn me over to the Jews without any proven charges against me. Festus confers with his counsel when Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, and finds out that indeed all of this is correct. And so he says, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you will go. And again, we see God providentially work through the laws of men. Roman law allowed for citizens to appeal to the emperor, and that's exactly what Paul did and was therefore protected. So now the case is out of Festus's hands. The case is now going to go to Caesar. And Paul is going to end up in Rome. Of course, we already knew this because Jesus came to Paul when he was in Jerusalem and said, you are going to make it to Rome. Paul probably thought it was going to be in a little different fashion and probably a little quicker Remember, already two years has passed, then it's happened. But God's timing is always perfect. Another example, verses 13 to 22. So King Agrippa comes into town. He's going to come and meet the new governor in Caesarea. Bernice, his sister, comes with him. And Festus uses this opportunity because he realizes to send Paul to the emperor, to send him to Caesar, I've got to have a written case against him. And I don't know what to say because the charges they're bringing against him are not justifiable of death and really not imprisonment, but they're really screaming very, very loudly. He mentions that a couple of times here. In verse 18, he says, They brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. It's almost as if he's saying, They don't have a case. What am I supposed to write? It's interesting, though, when he does explain himself in verse 19. He says, it's certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. You know, it's, it's almost comical the way he phrases the resurrection. Um, but it also gives you some insight into his own ignorance. He really knew nothing of Christianity and probably very little of Judaism. But in spite of his ignorance, Festus committed 
to the rule of law. And he, and he knew that Paul could not be handed over to the Sanhedrin on the basis of a religious dispute. So God works through the law of Rome, guiding Festus to see the dispute with Paul was not a civil matter. And additionally, he has the insight to see that the charges were trumped up, that there were no witnesses, there was no proof. And he fails to give in to the pressure, which was not to a fair trial. They were literally asking for Paul to be condemned. They wanted him condemned when he was handed over. They simply wanted to execute him. They didn't want a fair trial. And Festus resists all of this. And again, we see Paul protected by the governing authorities and by the law. And then the last example, verse 23 to 27. Agrippa decides, this is an interesting case, and you kind of have to wonder how exciting his life was, just meandering around the countryside doing things that kings do. And he says, "Uh, I want to hear about this. And, of course, Festus says, the king gets to do what the king wants to do. Okay, you'll hear about it. So he sets it up, and he and Bernice enter the hall with great pomp. Military leaders, people of prominence come in. And Festus introduces Paul to Agrippa, saying, You see this man about who the whole Jewish people petitioned me, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. While this is slightly short of a complete exoneration, it was a very public statement of Paul's innocence. Yet because Paul had appealed to Caesar, it was out of... Festus's hands and out of Agrippa's. They're just simply going to give their opinions and Festus is going to use Agrippa to get what he needs to write so that he doesn't look like a bad leader. He needed something, verse 26, definite to write. I want to add here, I think it's interesting to note who the emperor was. The Caesar at this time was Nero. Nero. Except when you say Nero... After living overseas where everybody says Nero, I feel like I'm speaking with a southern accent, which I have. But anyway, Nero or Nero, whichever one you want to pick. He was the one who was Caesar at this time. And what is he known for? Well, the persecution of Christians. And while this had not begun yet, this is what was brewing in his heart. His early reign, historians call his golden age, when he was not oppressing Christians, he was not persecuting people, but we know this was to come. Additionally, keep in mind that this was all happening about 60 A.D. Do you remember what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? The general Titus marches in to deal with the problem with the Jewish people, right? Destroys Jerusalem, tears the temple down. To this day, the temple has not stood erect since. That all happened 10 years, approximately 10 years from this time. So all of this is brewing up. And Festus is asking Agrippa now to help him write this letter to Nero while all of this is going on. So that's the fourth example now of the protection that Paul received. Well, corruption abounds, not much unlike our own time. You've got rulers like Felix and Festus and Nero and Agrippa all receiving favors and granting favors for their own self-preservation and prosperity. We can see this in our own world throughout our own history. Jewish leaders continued a conspiracy that lasted over two years against Paul, wanting to kill him. Jerusalem, whether it knew it or not, was on the brink of destruction. Persecution, again, brewing in the heart of Nero against the Christians, would have been the greatest suffering at the hands of a ruling authority 
that Christians had experienced up to this time in history. Paul remains in incarceration, and yet he's safe. He's safe not because of the Roman soldiers standing next to him, but because God was working all things together for good, finishing the work that he had started in him, never leaving him or forsaking him. And I can say this to you today, that you too are safe in Christ because God's promises to you are the same, that he will never leave or forsake you, that he is going to finish the good work that he started in you, and that he is indeed working all things together for good. And so when you feel like your world is falling apart or when you feel like the world around you is coming down, crashing Don't run to the laws of men or to human authorities for your hope. But instead, run to the one who is the lawmaker, who set all things in order and rules over all things and holds all things together by his omnipotent hand, who not only rules over all things, but overrules all of man's laws as well. And consider his law. We do this each week. Before we come to the Lord's table, last Sunday we read together the Ten Commandments and we do that as our practice every week before the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, because in God's law we see who He is. And if you remember when I started off, why, how can we lay down on our pillow in peace at night? It's not because of the circumstances of this world because they change constantly. But it is only because of who God is that we can have peace. And we see His character when we come and we look at his law. We also see that we are secondary, subordinate, and dependent. In God's law, we see his standard and how we don't measure up, how we can't keep it. And this takes us in one of two directions either unholy fear, where we are scared, we dread, we fear judgment, and we tend to run the other way, or holy fear which is awe and respect, and a willingness to run and listen to Him. And what do we find when we run and listen to this holy God whose law we cannot keep? Well, I'll read it again, Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know what else we hear? For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We hear, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We come to this table today as children of the King of Kings. We come to this, this, this table and we cry, Abba, Father. We're not here as peasants. We're not eating the crumbs. Don't be thrown off by the size of the elements. All right? This is a feast. The Lord is our host. And it's pointing back to what He has done. And it's pointing forward to what He will do when we will get to join in at the feasts of feasts. And so in this time in between where you and I stand today, he uses this table to nourish us and to feed us. The wine and the bread take us to Christ whose body was broken 
and whose blood was poured out for us. These ordinary elements connect us to a spiritual reality. That is, in this table we see, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Let's pray. Father, let that truth sink into our hearts that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us because of what Christ has done. The righteous requirement of the law. Lord, we can't even imagine what it is. We look at the law and we see our failure. We look at the law, we see your perfection. We know your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, and you are so far above us, and yet you have condescended not only to give us your truth, but to save us, to meet the righteous requirement of the law, your own requirement. You are both just and the justifier. We praise you for that today. May that truth seek deep into our souls so that as we face the challenges in our lives, as we look at the world around us, we are not a hopeless people and that we don't live in despondency because of what we see on the news, but we fall at your feet and we pray to you as the sovereign ruler of the universe who rules over and overrules all that we do. And we trust you because of who you are. Give us great confidence today, Lord, in who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.